Ciao Andrea. Ciao Nan. How are uh, you? Very, very nice to see you. Same here. Uh, so today my guest is Andrea Lodi. He's the Andrew H. and N. R. Tisch professor at the Jacobs Institute at Cornell Tech and the Technion, as well as a member of the OR and Information Engineering field at Cornell University. His main research interests are in mixed integer linear and nonlinear programming and data science having a significant publication record in the most prestigious journals and conferences of those fields. Andrea's work has received several recognitions, including the IBM and Google Faculty Awards, and he's the recipient of the Informs Optimization Society 2021 Farkas Prize, which is right there. <laughs> he serves in leading editorial positions, most notably, he's a co-editor for mathematical programming and an area editor for Informs Journal Computing. He has been the network coordinator and principal investigator of two large European Union projects, and in the period of 2006 and 2021, he acted as a consultant of the IBM CPLEX research and development team. Andrea is the co-principal investigator of the project Data Serving Canadians, Deep Learning and Optimization for the Knowledge Revolution, and the scientific co-director of IVADO, the Montreal Institute for Data Valorization. Andrea, it's a Great honor to have you here. I'm so happy. Thank you so much. Como estai? How are you? It's my pleasure to be here. I mean, I, I watched uh, some of your uh, very nice uh, interviews with uh, some other colleagues and friends. So it's, uh, it's good to be one uh, part of the crowd. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, so, so you were born in August 1969. Uh, tell me about your family background and how was life during the 70s and 80s? Well, uh, I, uh, 70s uh, in, uh, in Italy were actually, uh, I would say, uh, a difficult time from the political circumstances. I mean, terrorism has been uh, like uh, uh, not, uh, not a great time uh, in, for Italy. Uh, been uh, political uh, opposition uh, uh, left and right at the worst possible uh, situation. But in terms of uh, be, me being a kid uh, at that time, it was wonderful. I mean, uh, the, the, uh, living in Bologna, which is uh, quite, uh, let's say, a advanced city from uh, many perspectives in terms of the university being there, so having a lot of uh, cultural uh, life. And uh, definitely the 70s were a time in which uh, we thought it was uh, uh, like uh, possible to achieve uh, anything also in terms of um, uh, equity uh, with uh, between uh, uh, diversity groups and so on and so forth. So for me, it was actually a nice, very nice time. Right. And what about your parents? What did they do? So uh, my parents were not in academia. <laughs> I would say at all, but uh, my, the, my father was working for a bank. My mother was actually left working, uh, stopped working a bit when uh, uh, the kids arrived, like a classical Italian family at the time, it's not that anymore. But, um, and uh, yeah, I have a sister that is actually uh, quite older than me, so 10 years older than me, but uh, we have. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, an interesting, uh, uh, as I said, a time to be 
um, to be a kid uh, with uh, a lot of freedom, I would say, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, uh, going around the, the neighborhood, uh, meeting friends, uh, coming back uh, home uh, only uh, when uh, our mothers were actually shouting on us. <laughs> playing <laughs> the streets <laughs> too? Yeah, playing in the streets, actually doing a lot of sports. So I was a very sport oriented type of kid. So I, I liked to go to school. I mean, that, okay, clearly it, uh, I, I was enjoying uh, uh, math and uh, a lot of other things, but um, I mean, pretty much everything in school. But at the same time, I was uh, enjoying really like uh, the, uh, staying uh, outside, outdoor as much as possible with friends. So the number of cars at the time in the neighborhood was not uh, was uh, limited enough to be able to play in the street without actually that 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 to be too dangerous and also to be stopped. We were playing actually tennis against the wall <laughs> in the street. And uh, uh, and we were actually annoyed by the fact that from time to time there was a car stopping uh, as uh, mm -hmm. forcing us to stop playing, mm -hmm. uh, which I think now would be like uh, in the area in which my parents used to live uh, would be like, uh, I don't think that they can play that, <laughs> that form with the number of actually, first of all, the number parked in the street and in addition, the number of cars passing by so that that would not be compatible. Right. But I have very nice memories about that. Uh -huh. Did you uh, play other sports? Uh, you mentioned tennis, and you were, you were that you were a sports-oriented person. So I wonder, I wonder which type of sports you, you well, enjoy. Uh, of course, uh, I'm Italian, so I was playing soccer in the street most of the time, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. And uh, and uh, I was playing. Uh, uh, I mean, mostly I I, uh, I was swimming. Uh, I did quite a lot of uh, later on. Uh, I mean, I started playing tennis uh, quite uh, intensively, but then when I moved to um, to high school, the, the the sport at the time in the 80s in Bologna was uh, uh, basketball. So there were two teams in the top uh, positions in the league. They even played uh, the championship final one against the other. They, I think they played the semi-final of the of the European Cup wow. one against the other. So it was called Basket City and everybody was like crazy about basketball. So I played basketball for maybe 10 to 15 years and then uh, wow. and then until the time in which uh, it was better to actually do some less uh, uh, let's say let's uh, contact the type of sport so I, I i went back to tennis even if i i still play soccer from time to time with my friends wow i don't know if you remember oscar schmidt a brazilian player that of course, in Italy <laughs> of course. For, uh, that was the time that was the time <laughs> exactly <laughs> when caserta was actually like a big team as well so and uh, oscar was playing for caserta so in the south yeah yes absolutely right uh did you study in a public or private school and were you a top student in your class or just an average student uh, I was actually, I always went to public schools. So, I mean, in Italy, I would say that most of the, the people that you may know uh, went to public schools is a bit of, a, of um, an exception going to private schools. The public system used to be, and I think still it is, uh, quite good. And, um, and uh, well, I, I would say that I was a good student. Yes, good. <laughs> I was a good student. <laughs> Did you have any heroes or any specific figure that inspired you in those days? Um, I, I mean, I don't think so. But what I know is that uh, in the in mid school, so in Italy, we have 13 years of uh, school, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, five elementary school years, three middle school, three years of middle school and five years of high school. 
and, and then we go directly to university different from many other systems so they in the middle school uh, i have this fond memory about our um, science and math teacher that uh, she took uh, um, she took a student, uh, a university student in physics that was actually uh, preparing his uh, uh, master dissertation about teaching physics to kids. And, the, and then so we spent for three months or even more, uh, every one of the lectures was actually uh, doing experiments in physics with weight, volume, all these kind of related things with them. That was actually try to give uh, us uh, the classical scientific method. So step by step to get to approve something that you want to achieve. And I, uh, I have a very fond memory about that time. I think that the, the interest in science and especially my appreciation versus the scientific uh, method has been, uh, has been forged at that particular time. So I, I, I couldn't say that it was my ear. I don't even remember exactly the name of the person who was there, <laughs> but I, uh, I definitely, uh, I, I found some time ago a nice picture of us doing these experiments and so on. And I, I, I always say that this is probably was my inspiration at the time in, in terms of, uh, of uh, becoming, uh, let's say, a scientist for sure. Yeah, yes. that's, that's great. And you should post that uh, picture eventually, maybe on Twitter. <laughs> I, 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 should, I should find it again. So I moved it from different places and I, should, I don't know anymore exactly where it is, but uh -huh. if I find it back, yes, maybe. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what were your main aspirations and dreams while growing up? Uh, I would actually, uh, yes, so I think it's important to say I, I, I grew up in the 70s, clearly, but I, uh, I make a point that I was born in 1969, which is the year of the man on the moon. Yes. So I think like 95% of the kids uh, of my generation, we wanted to be astronauts, right? I mean, <laughs> we wanted to go to the moon or something like uh -huh. that. So I still, uh, I still, um, I don't think I had, I mean, uh, I, 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 per I personally believe that I'm doing my dream job, but at the same time, uh, yes, if it was one thing that would probably at the time I was really like inspired by doing that. And I, the first time I went to visit the, the space center uh, at, uh, in uh, Houston. Johnson Space Center. Went, yes. Uh -huh. So I, then I went to also the Kennedy Space Center in uh, uh, later, Lord. a few years later uh -huh. at, uh, in uh, Cape, Cape Canaveral, yes. but in Florida. But uh, when I went to Houston, I, I honestly uh, spent like uh, a, a day, I was probably already maybe 40 or 35, I don't remember exactly, but uh, but it was like a kid in a candy store, right? I mean, I was like so excited about everything that was going on there that people were looking at me a bit like, wow, this guy must be very passionate. I can totally relate because I felt more or less the same. I visited both too. Uh, and, and it's a fantastic experience for those who, who love, you know, this, this type of things. Um, any special reason for choosing the, the electrical engineering degree? Well, uh, technically, 
uh, I, I wanted to stay in science and uh, definitely so I, had, I was tempted to go in physics, to be honest, at the beginning, which I think it was a very good decision because when I went to engineering, I realized that I was not really understanding physics very well. But, but uh, engineering was, uh, at the end, was like uh, the right place to be. I had a friend that in high school, his father was actually a professor at, uh, in my department, in the, in the department in which I became a professor of. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so he took us to visit the university, gave us a speech, uh, so on, at the time in which he was about to decide. And, and at the time, electrical engineering was actually like... Uh, uh, everything that was related to information uh, was actually uh, engineering was in the department. So the department uh, that was called uh, uh, DAIS at the time, so D-E-I-S, uh, um, then it became DAI, so D-E-I, um, was including, uh, so uh, graduating in electrical engineering was meaning like you can take a, a, a major in uh, uh, in, electric, in electrical engineering, but also in computer engineering or, uh, or uh, actually, in, in a certain sense, in a mathematical engineering, which was actually what I did uh, mostly with uh, uh, Silvano Martello and Paolo Tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how and when or appeared in your life? Well, the third year of uh, university. So at the time before the Bologna reform, so we had five years of... Uh, of um, uh, schools of engineering and uh, those five years uh, were actually split into the first two years uh, that were like basic science a lot of different uh, things including uh, of course computer science but also uh, mathem mathematics and so on and so forth and then uh, the third year we started to pick uh, the topics that you really were, are in were interested in and uh, when I I attended the first couple of lectures of Silvano Martello uh, as, a, as a professor of operational research. So the basic course of operational research, I definitely fell in love with the, the, the topic. And uh, so at the time, I mean, I, I couldn't be uh, ha uh, luckier than that. So not only Silvano was actually the, the, um, the, the, the professor in charge, but actually uh, uh, Matteo Fischetti was uh, uh, a young uh, fellow, mm -hmm. and he was doing the exercise, I mean, like uh, additional uh, um, uh, lectures, uh, like exercises, and so on and so forth. So I, I, I picked from both of them, and then I took the course of Paolo, and eventually that was uh, that was pretty much clear for me that I wanted to do the master thesis with um, Silvano and uh, Mauro Dell'Amico, that was actually at the time also around. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then later, uh, it was a step, uh, I mean, kind of a natural step to go into OR mm -hmm. uh, as a PhD student and so on. Right. Uh, you mentioned some big names there. Uh, yeah, were yes, you aware? Superstars. I would say superstars. So yeah. that, that you, le you learn from the best people. That is, uh, I, I, I told you, I mean, we're discussing about this, but I mean, it's definitely like uh, I, f I consider myself very lucky, right? I mean, I've been, uh, I had the best, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, among the best right. people that you can think about for uh, uh, to get inspiration from uh, both as a teachers, as a scientists, uh, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Were you aware of the importance of uh, the superstars when you were starting? Not uh, clearly not. No, I uh, well, I uh, it was pretty clear that Paolo was uh, 
so much respected by everybody else in the <laughs> department that uh, it must be somebody uh, in a certain sense that was playing a role but uh, no not really i mean uh, you you realize it too. i started to realizing it when i did the, the phd because of course uh, i mean there were books papers and then you start studying papers uh, and uh, and everything and you also you go to meetings and you realize how much these people are actually important for the community mm -hmm. so yes that, at that time but not at the time in which i was a student no yeah you mentioned that uh pursuing a phd was a natural path for you uh but when did you actually realize that you wanted to to do a phd so since it was five years so what we Roughly speaking, we believe that it was the it's like a bachelor and master program at the same time. So more or less, that was uh, uh, currently is the situation. So now it's split into three years plus two years, and then these are separate. And then uh, at the time, doing a master thesis, it was taking six months. So I was uh, actually like a, having a very good uh, long project. Uh, at the end, we wrote a paper about what I did into into my master thesis and. Um, and uh, well, I found it very, very interesting, right? I mean, it was about uh, math, CS, uh, this computer science at the same time, implementing the thing. It was a very creative and at the same time, interaction, the interaction uh, with uh, the other people, uh, with uh, the other people in the department uh, was uh, very pleasant. The professors was always very, uh, relaxed but at mm -hmm. the same time like uh, having the impression of doing something meaningful mm -hmm. very nice environment so, so that, yes that's very nice environment so i told myself i i, I kind of considered it to be like a, a, at that point a kind of a natural choice right uh well without understanding exactly what it was like i mean <laughs> in a certain sense so you, it's a natural choice to take three more years to study in italy was three years uh -huh. And uh, but the fact that was leading to stay at the academia and so on and so forth was again not totally clear at the time. So it was partially uh, the case, but not totally clear. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, what about the famous corridor? Uh, can you confirm the story told by Manu Yori, who was here as a guest last year? Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, we were uh, we grew up in the corridor. Uh, we were sharing. Uh, uh, the this uh, essentially open now they're calling it open space for us it was just being the corridor <laughs> because it was not designed to be an open space <laughs> with desks the desks were added because of the fact that there was like uh, this lack of uh, chronicle lack of space and so the students were actually sitting in the corridor so uh, i uh, when I joined, Alberto Caprara was already in that corridor, and then I, uh, I actually took a little bit of his space, and then uh, <laughs> and then there was Juan José Salazar was actually visiting. It was not exactly there at the time, but visiting uh, multiple times uh, and uh, uh, sharing with us the corridor. And uh, Alberto was already a PhD student at the time, and I was actually a master student, and then I stayed as a PhD student, and then eventually. We moved it to the office. This was actually a part which was uh, almost in front of uh, Paolo Toto's uh, uh, office. And then we moved it to the office uh, very nearby. And then we kept our, that space for uh, Michele Monaci later, for mm -hmm. uh, Manuel and Yori um, mm -hmm. and a few others. Eventually, uh, we found more space later and then <laughs> they, they went down. So, but I mean, that, that was the group staying there, yes. You mentioned so many great names. I think we should call that a corridor of fame. 
right? Instead of well, Hall of it, Fame? It was, it, it was definitely like a, a, an interesting... Um, I think Manuel mentioned that the, 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 all the students or everybody passing by the department was stopping to ask information, right? I mean, mm -hmm. asking, well, where is the office of this one and this one? Uh, for me, the, the, that is totally true. Uh, the main memory about this is that we used to recognize uh, uh, exactly the people, so the, the usual people, or the, so the other professors in the, in the department, by the way in which they were actually walking, right? I mean, we were listening to the, the walk of somebody coming behind us, and we say, oh, uh, Professor Calzolari is going to his office, right? I mean, and then it was just because we, <laughs> we were so much used to this that it was clear. And at the same time, I, uh, I had this uh, 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 memory about uh, uh, so when I started traveling a lot. So at some point, I was in, a, in an airport with a stack somewhere, and I started coding. I had my laptop. On my uh, on my uh, luggage, and I I was actually coding. I so tried to write some code, and um, and somebody told told me, "Wow, I mean, this is actually um, can you concentrate in these circumstances?" And I told them, uh, I told this person, "Well, I mean, <laughs> sure, <laughs> that is actually a piece of cake. <laughs> yeah. It's actually it's a it's a reasonable environment mm -hmm. to concentrate." And so, in order to actually write debugging your own code and so on and so forth, under this situation, with everybody passing by, asking questions, uh, noising, walking, uh, and uh, and actually. Um, having conversations uh, and uh, students waiting for an appointment with the professors that was clearly like a good place <laughs> <laughs> so if you could resist to that uh, I mean, we're not recommend it but it, it helps in some uh -huh. in some type of circumstances yes. yeah it's a great story and uh, guessing the the people based on their steps it's pattern recognition and it's best right <laughs> <laughs> yes probably yes uh, and you are quite known for your vast work on integer programming. However, you actually started your research career working on heuristics for packing and assignment problems, right? Yes. So th that at the time, um, so you know, in Bologna, there, there were uh, several topics that have been very uh, important and on which uh, um, the, the group gave uh, great contributions, especially the original uh, core team. So at the beginning was uh, definitely the, the knapsack problem. But when I, when I joined, the uh, Silvano and uh, Daniele Vigo were actually very much involved into uh, extending the, essentially the work on uh, uh, one-dimensional uh, packing into two-dimensional, three-dimensional packing, and that was my my topic for the for the PhD thesis mostly, especially at the beginning. Then uh, uh, I. Uh, and then I did, uh, yes, uh, a little bit of meta heuristics, uh, bounds, uh, models. Uh, but then uh, over time, the situation was like uh, at, the at the time, uh, only Paolo and Silvano were supervising students. So, so which means that they, we had a limited number of students, like one student at a time. So mm -hmm. I, when I was the student or uh, uh, together with Alberto, mostly we were actually looking at uh, one or two problems at most. But then but we had uh, multiple people to interact with because of Paolo, Silvano, Daniele, but also by the fact that uh, there were, uh, Matteo was still uh, kind of very connected, uh, Mauro Dell'Amico. And so over time, I was involved in many things. And then uh, everybody found his, uh, his own path. Mm -hmm. And uh, right. uh, because, uh, because uh, indeed, uh, uh, Paolo, Silvano were actually very open for us to, 
I mean, finding our own way. Mm -hmm. And what made you turn attention to integer programming? Well, Matteo, I would say that uh, Matteo was <laughs> was the key insp inspiration for turning my attention to integer programming, where I really found uh, my uh, well, the the thing that I wanted to do the most because it was uh, very connected to general purpose methods, so being able to implement things that were actually making a difference within uh, solvers like Cplex or. Uh, like uh, writing code, but at the same time uh, doing uh, methodological uh, work. Uh, and um, and so I found it that that was the, the thing that was actually was inspiring me the most. And definitely I got it from mm -hmm. them. Yes. Right. Um, another positive aspect in Bologna is that you had the opportunity to meet great names that eventually visited the university. Uh, do you remember some of them? Oh, well, uh, uh, you can't be uh, more true in saying that. I mean, uh, I I have a very this very fat, fond memory of the. I, I was indeed uh, sitting in the corridor uh, <laughs> at my desk, and then Paolo uh, comes out of his office and says, "Andrea, I'm very busy. Uh, you have these are the keys of my car, okay? Which is already well, like intimidating. You know? <laughs> and these are the keys of my car, and you have to uh, you go." Uh, picking up uh, Egon Balash at his hotel. Wow. And <laughs> <laughs> what well, I was actually half understanding what the, the, the I mean, I've, probably I was more worried about uh, uh, driving Paolo's car than to go to uh, to meet Paolo, uh, to meet uh, Egon. But uh, that was actually what was happening. So uh, Egon Balash was regularly coming to spend uh, a week uh, in Bologna, maybe teaching uh, a uh, few, le few lectures in uh, Paolo Simano class. I mean, Jan Karel Lestra was another one. Dory Dogbaum was coming very regularly. That was like, uh, that, that was uh, Disneyland. Seriously, something. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> Disneyland. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, yes, uh, and I really drove Paolo's car, uh, pick up Egon, brought him, to, I mean, <laughs> got him to the office on time for his talk. Talking to him, and uh, and that was the beginning of uh, a very very nice very nice relationship that I had with uh, with Egon, and um, that was uh, I mean Egon is uh, was uh, the number one storyteller and uh, yeah. in in our profession plus a superstar of course in yeah in, absolutely in the, in the in the profession right in the profession but yeah. I mean I have those memories and yes. um, let me tell you uh, Nelson Macoulin who was also here uh, last year as a guest. Uh, he told that the driving skills of uh, Professor Egon Balash was not the most uh, <laughs> developed, if you will. So I think it was better if you drove the, the car, probably. Uh, so well, you could get especially, especially in a city like Bologna, Bologna which is yeah. not as complicated as uh, probably as Rio de Janeiro, yeah. but still it's na narrow streets and so on and so yeah. forth. Definitely, I think I was, I was helpful at that time. Uh -huh. Yes, the, this experience of meeting big names uh, when you're still young can be very inspiring. Uh, for example, I remember the first time uh, we met uh, about 14 years, 14 years ago uh, during the Brazilian Hour Conference here in João Pessoa, my hometown. Uh, I was in my first year of my PhD and you were one of the keynote speakers uh, of the conference. And at some point, uh, Sheila Zockner, the secretary of Sobrapu, which is the Brazilian Hour Society, told me to take you to the local market to buy cashew fruits. 
that's because I was living here. Of course, I was already doing PhD in Itaroy, uh, but uh, I, it's my hometown, so I, I, I knew where to take you. And, uh, and moreover, I remember that later you even attended my presentation and you were very supportive after the session and that had a great impact on me. It was probably the first time I was getting a direct feedback uh, from a distinguished international researcher. And so after all these years, Andrea, uh, I would like to thank you for that very kind gesture. And, you know. Well, <laughs> so thank you for saying that. The, to be honest, uh, uh, the situation is, uh, I, I, as I said at the very beginning, so I'm, uh, um, I, feel very, I, I feel very lucky. I've been very lucky. Uh, I mean, growing up as a scientist in Bologna, as a student first uh, and um, as a scientist, uh, let's say, during the PhD later, and uh, I tried to give a little bit back. So in the sense that I tried to, to go to places uh, doing uh, PhD courses, uh, try to talk with the younger uh, people uh, as much as I can. And um, because I feel like I was lucky to, uh, to have this, I mean, sometimes uh, if you are in a, uh, if you're not in the, in, in those big places in which uh, things were happening, so like Bologna was one of these places, especially if I think about Europe, and then uh, you, you have, uh, I mean, you have much more uh, feedback than you can have uh, uh, from, uh, uh, I mean, absolutely becoming a scientist in other places. Yes. And I think this is, uh, this is something that I have to give back to the community. So I tend to say uh, yes, uh, when uh, I'm asked to, to um, actually it's a pleasure, right? I mean, it's not that I feel obliged to do it, but in any case, I also feel that it's part of my, uh, of my, uh, my being part of the community to, to partially give back what I received at the, at the time. Yeah, and we thank you for that, for sure. Um, after finishing the PhD, you quickly found a position in Bologna itself. And, and how was the transition from being a student to becoming a professor? Very, again, very natural in a certain sense, because at the time, indeed, this, the, there was like uh, the evolution of the group uh, was uh, very linear, right? I mean, it was, uh, um, I mean, they were actually, at the time, Paolo and Silvano had the, the position, Daniela had the position, uh, Alberto had the position. So eventually, one position has been created because the group was growing and uh, I was the right place in the right time. And it was not a big transition to start teaching myself and being more independent, uh, it, it, especially because as I, um, I, I, I like to, I, as I partially told you before, that we have been uh, given, uh, you, I mean, complete independence from the, the very early days. So if you think about the people that have been uh, growing uh, uh, in the group created by Paolo and Silvano, so everybody uh, got his own uh, uh, let's say specialty, right? I mean, like uh, personality-wise, it was a he or she was actually with Valentina, labeled to actually later on define uh, uh, themselves in in a specific area. So, for uh, clearly, Matteo was was one case uh, that uh, Mauro Alberto was actually more in the approximation side. I was more in integer programming. Uh, Daniele clearly took the, the applied side uh, to uh, to the top limit. Uh, limits and so on and so forth. So I think that was um, was not a big transition in the sense that we stayed in uh, in a good environment and I was already like uh, in a, I had already enough uh, 
um, enough freedom during my mm. my PhD for uh, doing the things that I really wanted to do. Right. Uh, in a recent presentation, you mentioned that MIP solvers are composed of main four components, namely pre-processing, cutting planes, branching strategies, and primal heuristics. You put a lot of effort in devising efficient procedures for each of these components. Could you mention some of your main contributions in this context? Well, I, I, I pretty much believe that uh, I, I spent my entire career in trying to improve each one of these steps. But, <laughs> but uh, definitely the, the, the starting point, which was uh, the, the work on uh, heuristics uh, that you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I moved from uh, heuristics for combinatorial optimization problem to heuristics for uh, general purpose uh, uh, MIP. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. with local branching and the feasibility pump, this has been uh, a long-term interest for me and uh, in improving the i mean that was again my partially because uh, uh, motivated uh, clearly by matteo but it was pa partially because uh, my own experience when you start when i started running cplex which was 3.0 mm -hmm. at the time mm -hmm. um they, they i mean for the people doing computation in mip so you, you the, the, there was the column of uh, uh, the feasible solution, so the primal bound, uh -huh. this was never uh, populated, right? I mean, you stay for hours uh, with, uh, with the dual bound uh, moving uh, nicely, and the primal bound was essentially uh, empty, and that was quite annoying. And um, No gaps, right? <laughs> no gap, because there was no primal solution. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and so when uh, I think that the contribution uh, of uh, populating that column, uh, I mean, not by my by myself or uh, but uh, with the i mean giving some contributions in that direction and pick it up by the cplex people with several uh, methods and many others have been a very nice uh, time at the beginning of 2000 in which there was a huge amount of activity on uh, on this area and i and i think that was nice now i'm, I'm picking back this uh, uh, with my work on the um, integration of learning methods with uh, uh, discrete optimization and MIP, and uh, I have a student that is actually looking at these things uh, mostly, and, uh, uh, and Matteo joined the, this effort again. Mm -hmm. So we are having fun looking back at uh, what we did at the time and try to improve that uh, in, uh, on the lens of, as, as the people say, in the lens of the machine learning perspective. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, I mean, cutting planes has also been uh, like uh, quite a lot of uh, my my interest uh, uh, in um, uh, slightly later than than the heuristics. But again, uh, as you said before, so there were these four components. I pretty much tried to to um, I feel that I I never I, st I started uh, with the local branch. And I feel that I feel that I never stopped. Right? <laughs> so, so, so that was, every single aspect that was interesting for me. Uh -huh. Yeah, local branching, uh, as you mentioned, is one of the most popular methods that you have proposed. And how did you and Matteo come up with that idea? Well, uh, this is an also an interesting story. So I think, uh, at least for me, it's very interesting. I think that was coming from uh, originally uh, was coming from um, um, some uh, work on uh, set covering uh, uh, that Matteo did. So like, uh, but in a combinatorial context. Then he proposed me idea, and in order to to explain me the idea, uh, of course the the easiest w way to do it was actually like thinking at uh, 
um, uh, like a, a two opt, three opt, K opt for the TSP, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the classical way to think about it. And then we started to think about this. And then I know for sure that uh, uh, Matteo and uh, JJ, so Juan Jose, have uh, had a very initial version of this uh, sometime before. But the, at the time in which we realized, the, we, we, we took it, I mean, we, we took it to the level for writing the paper was the time in which we realized that uh, uh, there was a chance of solving, uh, at least heuristically, uh, mixed integer programs by themselves, right? I mean, in a certain sense, uh, the idea that is behind the scene is that you can take a, you can model your problem, uh, your neighborhood as a MIP and try to use uh, CPLEX or your favorite MIP solver to actually, uh, I mean, partially solving the problem, at least finding solutions for the problem, provided that you give it uh, 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 that is uh, concise enough, small enough, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, well defined with the local branching constraint, so it's actually giving you some uh, traction or a grip, as Matteo would like to call it, probably, mm -hmm. in order to get into this. So this is the, 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 the beginning. So I believe that uh, JJ has implemented uh, uh, one per, some version of maybe a couple of years or three years before and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, I think it was because it was not the right time, right? I mean, in a certain sense, the time in which uh, the, it was possible to use a MIP solver as a black box uh, it didn't come, mm, uh, was not right. mature at the time. Mm -hmm. But I also remember very well that uh, when, uh, uh, I mean, we discussed about this uh, in actually, I think in uh, Sardegna during uh, an IRO conference, so the Italian OR mm -hmm. conference, and then I came back and implemented this and I, I gave a call to Matteo in the evening saying, well, I mean, I got, uh, mm, uh, I think it was actually the, mo the, the best known solution at that point for Seymour. So the famous set covering instances instance in the MIP lib, uh, I don't remember which one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, so we had to check that it was actually correct because <laughs> nobody knew about a solution. I think the solution, was, if I remember correctly, was 423 and i don't think it was known that there was a solution of 423 and i got it in like a, a couple of steps of the of a basic local branching implementation so we were like wow that's something going on here. yeah yeah <laughs> right excellent yeah uh you acted as a scientific advisor for cplex for so many years uh could you share more details about this long-term collaboration well, that was uh, again uh, like being a candy store, right? I mean, it's uh, for for me is uh, was like uh, when they asked me to to join as a as a part time member as a consultant in a certain sense. I mean, that was like, well, these people are doing history, building uh, the software that was. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, I mean, led to a different level of the cap our uh, ability of solving uh, mixed integer linear programs. And then I can try to use uh, uh, it uh, in, uh, uh, I mean, the, uh, seeing if my ideas can get into the, the software being uh, being um, helpful for uh, for improving a lot. And I, I actually, my uh, intimate understanding of uh, mixed integer programming is, is based on the possibility of actually collaborating so many uh, great people uh, uh, in the CPLEX team over time. So it's has uh, been a very, very nice journey. Again, uh, right place at the right time? Well, very much uh, so. Uh, I, I've been uh, 
collaborating with many people, uh, I mean, super strong people, like uh, starting from Gu, of course, uh, uh, Rothberg, so the people that then later went to Gurobi, mm -hmm. but I mean, I had the chance of working with uh, uh, many, many, many uh, great people, like uh, clearly like uh, Tobias Achterberg by, I mean, late, more later, more recently with the, uh, Pierre Bonami has been, uh, and I, I developed a nice connection with these people. It was a very, very nice time. Yeah, yes. that's, that, that's excellent. Do you still code or do you have a favorite programming language? Unfortunately, I don't code very much anymore. <clears throat> I, um, I, for my teaching, I, I became a bit familiar with, uh, um, with um, Julia mm -hmm. and uh, Jump. And, yes, I, mean, I also use that for teaching. Yeah, yeah but not really uh, i don't have the time to actually i don't have a co uh, enough uh, enough amount of uh, uh, continuous time to devote to actually writing the code myself so that's been uh, like something that i'm missing because it was a very nice time but i uh, know i in the last probably 10 years i haven't been uh, doing this very much yeah i perfectly probably understand it less but yes. yeah yeah as you move on in the career, you tend to have less time to, to code. And well, it's it's a matter of, uh, I mean, uh, at some point, you it, it's the way in which the profession evolves. In a certain sense, the point is that you have uh, other responsibilities and this responsibility makes uh, allow you to mm -hmm. uh, to build a team uh, and having students uh, and uh, you feel like that's the, the job that you have to do. But this means that there's also like a, uh, like a time in which it's hard. I mean, uh, there are still people my age or even older that they do code actually quite a lot. I mean, uh, Jeff Linderoth was uh, here for uh, in New York for six weeks uh, as uh, during his sabbatical, and uh, he was so happy to be able to during sabbatical to spend really a, a good chunk of his time in writing code. So maybe uh, the next sabbatical I can try to do that. Yeah, yeah. Why not? <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I, I used to actually again. Uh, I used to, the first uh, uh, type of project that I did was actually was in, uh, were in Fortran, mm -hmm. even. Then I switched to C, and uh, most of the things that I've done in integer programming are in C. C yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, just right. recently I'm doing something else. Mm -hmm. uh, you also seem to be very active in the constraint programming community. In which cases do you think that combinatorial optimization approaches can benefit from constraint programming? Well, I, th that was a time, especially in Bologna, in which there was a big group uh, um, doing this. Michela Milano was actually the person that was uh, uh, mastering this and building a group uh, related to this. She was, uh, Michela and I were actually undergrad students together. Mm -hmm. So we grew up together as, uh, in, uh, in the, when we did the PhD. In, actually, she did it in CS, I did it in, in math, but uh, in, I mean, or whatever so mm -hmm. in any case you know what mm -hmm. and uh, and um, and so it was clearly like uh, uh, when the the wave of uh, constraint programming started and the connection with the mathematical programming that was uh, uh, i wasn't uh, again maybe the right time at the right place <laughs> and uh, and so there was a, a natural for me to actually start looking at those things it was fun uh, i i believe that what as uh, i mean there was more hope of a of a stronger integration, especially when when Cplex uh, when uh, uh, when actually um, I log both IB uh, both sorry both uh, Cplex at the time before the IBM time, 
so the idea of putting these two things together was actually more uh, uh, more um, uh, I mean, in a certain sense, it was more hope. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think this integration has been happening uh, quite a lot. So if I think about uh, many methods that have been uh, developed in uh, for the pre-processing uh, side of uh, MIP, they are largely, um, I mean, overlapping with the constraint propagation mm -hmm. and, and all this uh, area. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the, the constraint programming solvers, which are, were originally like a pure type of methods, they became a very hybrid uh, um, codes and algorithms that are solving a lot of MIPS uh, internally. Of, of course, people like uh, um, Pascal Van Henterick uh, mm -hmm. have been been uh, the, the the masters yes. and uh, the, the, the the inspiring uh, um, uh, Figure. people do, figures in doing this kind of uh, integration. I would say that that, that if uh, twenty years ago Pascal was considered a constraint programming person, uh, now I don't think anybody is actually has any any uh, doubt in considering a hundred percent mathematical programming person. And this shows that uh, many people. Um, have really uh, really uh, uh, realized this type of integration fully. Yeah, excellent. Yes, uh, Ruslan Sadikov was here as a guest last year, and he highlighted the importance of recognizing the efforts of developing optimization software. For example, uh, when one is applying for a job or a grant, uh, publications tend to attract immediate attention, while the potential impact of an open source code or software might be overlooked. What's your take on this? It's uh, sadly true. Um, even if there have been steps uh, for correcting this, for example, uh, inspired by, I think, uh, uh, Martin Grutschel at the time, uh, the, uh, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Bill Cook, has, mm -hmm. has built uh, mathematical programming computation as a journal. Mm -hmm. uh, MPC became a very respected journal in the area that publishes also uh, papers that are, uh, I mean, mostly computational in a certain sense. You have to submit the code or provide the access. Yes. For, for... So there have been uh, multiple uh, steps. So now you not necessarily the code, maybe an executable. I mean, it's uh, on, on, the, on the other end, uh, I would say I can see the reverse uh, thing uh, as well. So now journals like uh, Operation research, management science, they are requiring you to contribute the code at the end in order to, I mean, with a sort of a reproducibility perspective. They don't look at the code itself, but as the code has to be available. Mm -hmm. So I think there is uh, some, uh, I mean, there is an improvement. I think that um, it's definitely true. I mean, uh, uh, people doing uh, um, computation or de developing software, it's not, I don't think it's totally. It's only for our uh, um, field. I don't. I even in the machine learning context, uh, in a certain sense, I. I mean, the people that have developed uh, uh, open source uh, type of projects and so on. And maybe, uh, for example, those that led uh, took it to the highest level uh, is because they they work into companies for mm -hmm. which uh, this is important. Like mm -hmm. I mean, you think about Google and so on. And yes. so forth. Otherwise, it's actually maybe difficult. But at the end of the day, I would recommend. Uh, I mean, to be honest, I, I would recommend uh, people, young people, to do. Mm, I don't think there is a there is a 
recipe for that, right? I mean, if you're really passionate in writing software and you want to take it to the, the best uh, and, uh, and doing that, um, I think that you can find your own way if you are good and if you are passionate with that. Mm -hmm. So I have plenty of examples that are prices for implementations like the BOH price from the MOS uh, mm -hmm. MOS uh, uh, mathematical optimization society so i mean at the end of the day i mean if the if a young person is is uh, I, I i always recommend a young person to do what uh, he or she feels uh, it's actually the uh, 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 is uh, the, following passion. Uh, the passion yeah, yes. yeah excellent absolutely uh, there has been some criticism regarding the difficulty of using optimization tools when compared to ai and machine learning software thus preventing some OR methods from being widely used in practice. What's your opinion regarding this matter? It's a very, it's a $1 million question. So um, uh, we recently had a, a workshop uh, in uh, during the uh, AAAI conference about uh, uh, partially motivated by the uh, so constraint learning uh, and uh, other things like this, so you, the interaction between AI and uh, and operation research. So of course everybody kind of says this. It's like, uh, well, it's still hard to to come up with a good uh, discrete uh, mixed integer programming model, uh, um, and uh, and so on and so forth. But um, uh, my take is that uh, these are NPR the problems, right? I mean, <laughs> there should be some difficulty <laughs> in solving them. Otherwise, uh, otherwise, uh, that's uh, that's not. Uh, I mean, everybody can write a, a valid MIP formulation, but not everybody can write a formulation that is uh, uh, solvable by a mixed integer uh, uh, solver, right? I mm -hmm. mean, that is the end of the more or less that is the situation so can you can you automatize the fact of writing very yes. good formulations yes. i am uh, well, i mean there have been steps uh, over time and there are there are uh, let's say uh, positive uh, um, use cases in which things have been improved have improved but uh, but the, on the other end uh, some inherent difficulty must be related to the fact that uh, the, the problems are hard and so you need even more research to actually getting into this mm -hmm. so that is my take on that yeah but i mean the fact that there are people that are trying to uh, to do that i i feel that is definitely possible and in i mean the, the comparison with ai methods is a bit is a bit Particular because the point is that the the AI method or machine learning methods are delivering you a statistical uh, output, right? Output, I mean, it's yeah. like a probability that something is true or uh, uh, or some uh, let's say uh, uh, predictive. Uh, is this a cat or not? And and this is uh, I mean like everything that is statistically done. Uh, I mean, you can prove uh, very complicated and very um, and beautiful uh, um, uh, mathematical theorems about this, but at the same time, in practice, it is going to be used mostly as a, as a statistical tool for mm -hmm. getting insight. So in, in, in math, uh, in uh, OR, um, I mean, true or, uh, I mean, uh, right or, 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 uh, or not right, we also try to prove optimality, which uh, uh, requires uh, uh, on NPR problems uh, uh, some more uh, less statistical and more mathematically oriented uh, 
type of mm-hmm. uh, approach, in my opinion. Okay. Um, at some point, you moved to Canada. What made you take that decision? Well, uh, that was uh, like uh, an opportunity that was impossible to miss. So the the um, this position uh, that I had for seven years, uh, my my chair is about to finish uh, in uh, at the end of June uh, uh, of this year. Uh, is uh, is like uh, the dream. Uh, a job for uh, for a, I mean for a scientist. So the government uh, gives you a quite uh, generous I mean, amount, amazing, amazing, uh, more than generous. <laughs> I would say amazing amount of money mm-hmm. for building a team, and uh, you are uh, you are you're put in the best possible conditions for doing this. Uh, uh, I mean, essentially, you hire students without. Uh, I mean, thinking if you have a project or anything, I mean, because. You can build it on the way, mm-hmm. and uh, in addition, uh, I was again at the right time in the right place in the sense that we start the, the, the idea of having this uh, this chair that was uh, uh, running on the integration of or actually the interaction between uh, machine learning and discrete optimization was actually uh, designed inside the, the University of Montreal Polytechnic and HEC, so the business school. Mm-hmm. They have been, uh, uh, let's say, um, kind of uh, uh, adventurous in giving this position to me, but <laughs> that was meaning that I could collaborate with, uh, uh, again, superstars, top scientists, uh, like, uh, I mean, people in OR, like, uh, I mean, superstars in the, mm-hmm. of, uh, I mean, people that build the profession, like Francois Soumy or yeah. uh, Michel Gendreau and... Uh, Gilbert Laporte, plus the old the, the young generation, Louis Martin Rousseau, and all these people, uh, Jean Francois Cordeau, Emma Frehinger, and, uh, and so on, plus all the beautiful uh, environment and uh, very inspiring environment like Joshua Benjo, mm-hmm. that Joshua Benjo created over time, so mm-hmm. in the machine learning side. So, of course, uh, okay. nice, nice, very, very good place to be mm-hmm. at yeah. the time. Great. Uh, in recent years, uh, the interplay of machine learning and combinatorial optimization increased substantially. For example, one may use optimization procedures to improve the accuracy of machine learning models, sometimes providing interpretability, whereas machine learning approaches can be employed to improve the efficiency of exact and heuristic algorithms. How far these two lines have evolved and what are the main challenges to be addressed? Uh, they have they have taken uh, I mean at the time in which I started to do it there was no community and uh, I think the community uh, I mean there were a lot of people doing this independently now there is a community so that every conference in machine learning uh, has uh, some I mean, stream in which those papers uh, are uh, are well received uh, there are uh, workshops uh, there are uh, summer schools uh, so on and so forth so that's a big step. From the scientific perspective, uh, we are at the second level. So we have first uh, we have to show that uh, you can learn in the context of mixed integer programming or vice versa that uh, discrete optimization methods could be useful for. But uh, there were more proof of proof of concept. Uh, now I think that the step uh, to be achieved is uh, to put these things into production. So. In, we have been together with my student uh, Julia Zarpellon and, bon- uh, and Pierre Bonami. We have been able to actually having the first implementation of uh, the 
of a learning algorithm that is actually is now um, integrated into CPLEX is in the full version for deciding about linearizing or not a mixed integer mm -hmm. quadratic optimization problem. This was a big step. I think that uh, now Gurobi is doing something on other uh, uh, parts. Uh, for sure, Express is doing this for other things as well. Skip as stuff like this. So uh, there are uh, some uh, uh, technical issues, which are, uh, uh, for example, uh, the, a lot of uh, the good uh, methods in um, in learning methods are based on uh, on uh, neural networks. Neural networks uh, are, give their own best on uh, um, C uh, GPUs, while uh, we do everything on CPU. So the inter the, the relationship, even hardware uh, uh, perspective, uh, it's uh, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. The uh, learning methods, for for example, for discrete optimization, are uh, are evaluated over uh, accuracy which uh, doesn't tell you much about the performance of uh, the optimization methods they are applied to. I mean, there have been a lot of research uh, uh, on trying to do uh, like uh, more integrated methods. Uh, I mean, the big step could be doing uh, uh, reinforcement. If reinforcement learning uh, wants to move from, uh, from uh, let's say, uh, gaming, so Go and, uh, and Atari games to actually something which is really like applied. Uh, I mean, no offense, of course, of for course. Atari <laughs> games, but the point is to really solve applications. And then, uh, I mean, one uh, important case study could be like uh, try to make it working for difficult problems in discrete optimization, like, for example, branching. So for which it seems to be perfectly designed, but I mean, the, the reward uh, uh, techniques uh, require uh, uh, quite a lot of evolution. So. I think that there are plenty of questions on the table, but we, the good news is that we are already on at a point in which we have to show practical relevance, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. not anymore like a proof of concept. I think it's practical relevance and we start to, to see some that relevance. Yeah, that's very nice to hear. Very encouraging. And I, I honestly hope that more progress uh, can be made in the very next years. Um, so, Andrea, some authors from the machine learning community have attempted to solve classical combinatorial optimization problems such as CVRP using all sorts of learning procedures. I have noticed that many of them simply don't compare the results produced by their methods with state-of-the-art optimization-based algorithms. I personally believe that this sometimes can be misleading, you know, can yield misleading conclusions. What is your impression uh, on this? Do you have any recommendations? Well, I, I, I recently wrote a paper with uh, Daniele Vigo and uh, one of his students, Luca Corsi, about that. So we have a paper on, uh, I think, recently published on Operation Research Letters with giving some recommendation on try to use learning methods for, indeed, for the CVRP, because uh, I don't think that the community, I mean, the way in which we're comparing computational evaluations is not uh, aligned, so we don't do the same things. So that is certainly like an issue. I understand it. I'm not a CVRP person, but at the same time, I, I feel the frustration of some of those people uh, having spent quite a lot of time 
like you were, <laughs> the Brazilian crowd, I would say, the fantastic group in Brazil. So the frustration of seeing it like uh, almost like reinventing the wheel, but um, without comparing with the real wheel. Um, so yes, uh, it's a matter of, uh, I mean, this is the one part of the creation of the community that didn't happen yet. But uh, for example, I spent quite a lot, of, if I can tell you, <laughs> I spent, uh, uh, I, um, in the last two, three years, I, I always said yes to to be a member of the um, program, I mean, not the program committee, but in, in the machine learning conference like uh, uh, NeoRips, so you, you mm -hmm. or ICML, you, you agree to be a referee, right? I mean, mm -hmm. get some papers and so on, especially because I wanted to learn on my side what are the trends and so on. It was very useful for me, but on the other side, also to play some role of saying, well, wait a second, so this has been compared with uh, something that is not realistic, right? I mean, and, and so on. So at the same time, coming back to your point that about uh, open source and whatever, of course, uh, the drawback is that some of our methods are not uh, open source mm -hmm. or they not used to be open source. And so, I mean, this open uh, opens the door to the fact that the, maybe the machine learning uh, community will say, well, I cannot compare with that because it's not open source. I cannot use it, right? And so I think there is some, uh, uh, some uh, uh, some effort that has to be done on our, uh, yeah, on that's our a very uh, fair point. Yeah, uh, side as well in order to make this uh, uh, to bridge this gap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, I know that paper. Uh, so this question was not a coincidence. Ah, okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so let's talk about Ivado, uh, the Montreal Institute for of Data Valorization. You are one of the co-founders of Ivado Labs. Tell me more about it. Well, these are two different things. So uh, IVADO is uh, the, indeed an inst research institute in a certain sense. So it's federating the effort uh, in the originally Montreal. I think now they changed the name to Quebec Institute of uh, uh, Learning uh, of um, um, uh, data, valor data Valorization. It's, uh, it's been uh, um, uh, funded for uh, building, uh, for essentially um, using uh, the, the the generous uh, funding given by the federal government on the thing that you were uh, discussing at the beginning, so data serving Canada. So we applied for uh, as principal investigator, um, co-principal investigator together with Joshua Benjo, and uh, we got this uh, generous amount of money from the government in order to actually make sure that the community was actually getting this uh, at large, uh, we, we built the Institute uh, and it's been my privilege to be the co-scientific director with uh, Joshua. And um, this has been a very nice journey, uh, interesting, but mostly on the research side. Like there is a, a little bit of technology transfer that is associated with, uh, let's say, uh, research projects between companies and uh, and uh, academia. But what we realized uh, over uh, over this uh, effort was that uh, when some of the companies, uh, in order to have more AI methods, so when we say AI at large, uh, learning, uh, discrete optimization, everything that is a, a bit goes from uh, what informs call prescriptive uh, and predictive, predictive and prescriptive analytics, uh, needed some, uh, uh, let's say, uh, more uh, consulting arm with respect to academia, right? I mean, uh, when a company gets together with uh, an institution like University of Montreal, they have to agree on uh, pretty much everything. And before that, they you can start the project. Uh, if it's a consult, if it's something that has to go into production, 
essentially uh, they, then the company is interested in, or when you when you're done the company already is interested in something else right i mean it's uh, it's not that doesn't go at the pace of uh, of that so that's the reason why we 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 built Livado labs that is in a consulting uh, company that try to uh, indeed use uh, uh, i mean the academic uh, experience we have 12 scientists that are we're giving one day a week to, to this and uh, having but uh, this is a more professional uh, perspective so it's uh, something that has been uh, uh, certainly you uh, useful because also the government uh, of canada uh, essentially granted some uh, money to this institution called scale ai to uh, favor uh, projects in uh, ai for uh, supply chain and so the the some of those projects are taken by even the labs as uh, essentially as a company like uh, it's uh, doesn't really have to let's say building a big agreement it just has to find the, the good project to work on and jump on it okay right have just by professional professional activity if you want <laughs> it's a little bit more professional than that right uh you have an extensive editorial activity by the way congratulations on being appointed as a co-editor for series b of mathematical programming uh Yes. What have you learned over the years, and do do you have any stories, interesting stories, to share in this context? Well, uh, I this dates back. Uh, I mean, uh, when uh, when uh, Daniel Kuhn, that became the MPA NP mathematical programming editor uh, in chief, uh, asked me to be a, 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 the co-editor in charge for MPB, has been like uh, closing the cycle because this was my first original uh, initial uh, first job as uh, in the editorial uh, team i've been asked by to join mathematical programming as a associate editor back in 2004 by bill cook mm -hmm. when he was uh, the editor uh, uh, in chief so i've been uh, with uh, almost 20 years with the mathematical programming is my I say that's the home mm -hmm. journal in a certain sense. So mm -hmm. it's very good to be to be, um, to be still there. Um, I mean, I learned a lot. I mean, uh, you have. Uh, I think the, the point is, uh, um, we sometimes all are frustrated by uh, how our papers are treated uh, by referees, by journals, and so on and so forth. This is. Uh, uh, inherent so structurally associated with the fact that th this is a, a voluntary type of job right i mean i'm spending a lot of my time for uh, just uh, just because i want to give <laughs> in a certain sense so of course is is prestigious in a form but it's certainly much more uh, work than uh, than the prestige that comes with yeah, it time so consuming. It's, fact yeah. that it's very time consuming and and the point is that you try to do it because uh, um, because uh, you feel like it's important to to keep uh, uh, the the publication process running in the way in which uh, you feel it's important that it has to run. I can tell you that uh, uh, there are some time there have been some time in which uh, the uh, I mean the contribution that I f I feel I gave is that, that sometimes uh, there was a, a short phase in which uh, um, uh, one classical approach. Uh, for uh, um, evaluating computational papers was like okay you're uh, you're try to uh, run so the referee could tell something like uh, oh well you compare with cplex if you are slower than cplex uh, then uh, your method doesn't work 
and this has been uh, fortunately rejected as a methodology for evaluating a paper by the community and it, that's the reason why there are editors associate editors and so on and so forth because sometimes the referees uh, i mean in in good faith they take shortcuts and we need to be there uh, one needs to be there for making sure that there is a there is a pitch that there is a uh, let's say there is the the, the the full picture is actually realized. So you want you need it as an editor to have a, a clear picture of what you want to achieve. And I think this is important. And uh, it's, it's not clear that my picture is better than the picture of somebody else. That is the reason why I should. I mean, I, I'm going to serve uh, as a co-editor for three years or whatever, and then somebody <laughs> else is going to take over. So the point is that it's important that there are we take turns. But at the same time, I think it's important that journals uh, are. Um, are managing in this form and then the people are devoting times time their time in in to keep the process process running okay uh the amount of complex activities you are involved is really impressive how do you manage time and what do you do in your spare time um <clears throat> that's a good uh, uh very good question so <laughs> In my spare time, I try to still do some sport. So I play tennis and nowadays mostly not uh, much soccer in the US so far because my best uh, soccer mate, uh, Octai Gunluk, is now in Ithaca and not in New York. Otherwise, I'm sure we will find a way. But I, I, uh, I have a colleague here that, uh, um, for which we probably want to start playing soccer with our students in, uh, in, uh, at Cornell Tech, but uh, here in Roosevelt Island. So um, I like a lot to go to movies, uh, theaters, uh, museums. Of course, being in New York is a great yeah, uh, location for that. I like food a lot, so I like uh, <laughs> going to nice, <laughs> as you uh, experienced. So I like to go to nice <laughs> restaurants, uh, uh, and um, and then yeah, I try to spend time with my family. I still have a part of my family in Italy, so I go back. Uh, I, I travel quite a lot back and forth, and mm -hmm. that's uh, time-consuming, but of course good. And um, I mean, the, the, the fact of being involved in many activities is. Uh, I don't know. I, don't, I cannot give you an answer that is actually clean enough in the sense that some days is overwhelming and I would like to keep uh, to reduce it uh, very much. And then some other days I feel that's right. I mean, it's already my type of life. And so I should keep, keep going. <laughs> but uh, but uh, you should probably mostly ask my students if they are frustrated or not getting enough attention, which uh, so far I, did, I don't have, uh, uh, I mean, I have uh, uh, I don't have uh, such a bad indication that I, uh, <laughs> that is happening. So, so I think I, I still good uh, a relatively decent balance on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, you have changed countries once again. You just mentioned that you are now in, in New York. So now you're you are in the U.S. to write the next chapters of your life. What can we expect from Andrea Lodi in the coming years? Uh, that's hard to say. <laughs> so I, I will. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that I will continue to play with uh, mixed integer programming for uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, but uh, here, there is a uh, quite a lot. I mean, first of all, it's my first job in a in a private university versus a public university, which is not necessarily like an easy step. Um, I mean. 
I came here as a tenured professor and everything, so it's not like a, a technical difficulty, but it's a it's an environment. It's changing. It quite it, things are changing. I'm enjoying it so far, but definitely is a change. In terms of uh, science, uh, I would say that uh, um, I mean here there is quite a lot of activity on uh, uh, urban tech. So like. Uh, if you want smart cities and uh, I mean the city the, the university has been created that this uh, campus has been created with a lot of connection with the city of New York in order to I mean try to help uh, also in making New York a better place to live and there's a lot of proudness about New York right I mean being a New York means being uh, means a lot to many people mm -hmm. and uh, it's nice and uh, I, I, I think that I will try to, to give a contribution in this direction so try to see if some of the things that I'm interested in are uh, uh, applicable uh, to this environment and, um, and uh, we see I mean uh, it's uh, definitely you're right I mean it's a different chapter I, uh, currently the, the, the previous chapter is still going on in the sense that I have many students left in Montreal that uh, I don't want to feel that they are left, so uh -huh, I, sure. I need to be there in, for in many perspectives. But at the same time, I mean, uh, uh, there are new challenges to be looked at. I think that there is a, this vast, uh, I mean, one of the things that I care the most at this point scientifically is that uh, uh, many of the, we are at a time in which uh, um, we can uh, uh, look at um, I mean, definitely there is this nice area about explainability of uh, the methods, uh, which has been, uh, I mean, an old and new problem at the same time. Uh, but also there is a, uh, what I care the most is, is more about the fairness, right? I mean, if, uh, we're talking about uh, resource allocation. Uh, discrete optimization is resource allocation uh, uh, to a vast extent, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. making yeah. decisions that are impacting the life of people. I mean, allocating resources, uh, doing things in such a way that there is an impact on the life of people. So I think fairness is, uh, is a fundamental uh, uh, area in which I think research uh, should go. Uh, I mean, a lot of people before me have done this uh, in a much better way, but I think as a, I, I'm, uh, I became to a point in which I reached a point in which uh, I think that there is some stuff I could potentially do. Mm -hmm. And I've already started a little bit with uh, some uh, of my friends and colleagues. So I think this is one area in which definitely I'll, I'll try to, to see if I can uh, still give some contributions. Right. Uh, I wish you the best of luck in that endeavor. <laughs> so, any plans to return to Italy? I still have uh, uh, quite a lot of connections uh, there. In this, I'm currently uh, teaching a PhD class. I have a, a partial appointment at the University of Bologna after six years of being completely out of the loop. Mm -hmm. I was uh, on leave. Uh, not returning to Italy, I think, as a permanent uh, home. But uh, I mean, there are, I'm I try to see if uh, to exploit some connections uh, um, uh, between uh, Cornell Tech and Cornell and uh, University of Bologna to see if there is some chance of doing things together. So yes, I'm, I have some plans, but uh, I mean, moving back to Italy as a, uh, uh, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But you know, but uh, it's too much moving. Yeah. But I still go. I still go. I, I still go quite a lot. So that's yeah. uh, which is good enough. In that right. Sense.
Plan to go to Brazil to come to Brazil. Actually, I well, I should plan to come to Brazil for a little while. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. So we, we can we can arrange you a nice office some somewhere here <laughs> by the beach. You know Jean Pessoa, uh, so you know it's beautiful. Uh, yes, beautiful. So you can always yeah. come and stay with us. Uh, uh, yes, I, I miss I miss. Uh, I mean, the last two years have been uh, terrible for everyone. So I don't think that the the in a certain sense that the fact of not being able to travel was the main thing because everybody had bad experiences about the pandemic. But definitely what makes uh, being a scientist special is that you are able to see your your colleagues over time uh, establishing a relationship which are uh, very strong uh, over uh, like uh, the job and the travels that we do together has been uh, has been, uh, let's say, uh, definitely sad not to mm -hmm. see many friends around the world. So I am looking forward to to start again. Yeah, and I hope to to see you soon here in João Pessoa. It was a great pleasure to have you here, and uh, I I cannot thank you enough, Andrea. It was wonderful to hear your views on many uh, or topics and also to learn more about you and your life, you know, having this better picture of your profile. So, grazie mille, thank you very much. Obrigado, <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, so Andrea, uh, hope to, to see you soon. Ciao, bye. Thank you, thank you very much. Yeah, bye.